0: I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. When it comes to nature versus nurture, how do the experiences we have even before we're born help shape who we
1: are? The diseases your mother fought off while she was carrying you in utero, the foods you ate as a child, the bacteria that colonize your gut, uh, the day length and temperature when you were young, all these things. Uh, form us. And then psychologist Nancy Siegel has spent her career researching
0: twins. She recounts meeting Jim Lewis and Jim Springer, identical twins separated at birth and reunited at the age of 39.
2: They both bit their fingernails, they both had um part-time jobs as sheriffs. They both drove the same cars. They vacationed in the same area in Florida. They worked at McDonald's part-time. They had severe headaches at the same time in adolescence.
0: Genes, our environment, and why we are who we are, ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. As any parent will tell you, raising kids has many challenges and comes with a number of questions. Perhaps the most fundamental of these is the question of nature versus nurture. We all have characteristics unique to ourselves, from our intelligence and sexual orientation to our height, weight, and food preferences. But where do these traits come from? Can we control them, or are they, in a sense, genetically pre-programmed? In his latest book, called Unique, The New Science of Human Individuality, Professor of Neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University, David Linden, addresses the topic of human individuality. He rejects the nature versus nurture paradigm and says that beyond heritability and experience, there's also a big dose of randomness that makes us who we are. Well, David Linden, professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins and author of Unique, um, welcome to the show. We appreciate the time.
1: I'm very happy to be here.
0: Well, David, this book begins with a personal anecdote. You tell this story of an unexpected foray into online dating, and um, unbeknowingly, you ended up with a whole bunch of interesting questions, um, which led to the research
1: of this publication. Can you tell me about it? Well, so the book is about human individuality, and about five years ago, I find found myself single in midlife, and as one does these days, I went online. Yeah. In, this case to Cupid and, and what you find there, of course, are people listing all their qualities, their traits. Some of them are physical ones like I'm so tall or I have this hair color and a lot of them are preferences like I like bitter beers, but I don't like runny eggs right. or I'm left handed or I tend to wake up late in the morning. And so to a biologist geek like me, when I'm reading all these traits, I'm not just thinking about, oh, maybe she would be a good match. Maybe I should meet her. Uh, I was also thinking, well, how do these traits come about? Like, where do they come from?
0: Right. And so this kind of of sent you down this really interesting hole of exploring uh, what we often hear of as this nature versus nurture question. Uh, You know, every parent brings this up, but I think that... One thing that you learned in the process of this is that the the conversation is a lot more complex than just that.
1: Yeah, nature versus nurture is really fun to say, and it has a good beat, and you can dance to it. Right. You know, it's like, if the gloves don't fit, you must quit. You know, that's a good rhythm. <laughs> sure. But, um, but it's a terrible expression. It, it really doesn't get to the heart of the issue, you know? I'm fine with nature standing in for heredity. That's just poetic language. But... It gives the idea that nurture, which means how your parents and your community raised you as a child, constitutes everything that you don't inherit genetically from your parents that's important, is just so untrue. There are so many broader things that impinge upon us to form us as individuals. And so I would replace it with the word experience. And by that, I really mean experience in the broadest possible sense, not just social experience and not just experience that can be written into memory, but uh, the diseases your mother fought off while she was carrying you in utero, the foods you ate as a child, the bacteria that colonize your gut, uh, the day length and temperature when you were young, all these things uh, form us. And so experience must be a much broader category. Right, And then versus is a problem too, because it's not all versus. It's not all like a push-pull between one and the other. They, they often uh, interact and conspire together. I mean, for example, if you're fortunate enough to be born quick and coordinated, you're very likely to practice sports and get better at them. So that's Heredity and experience reinforcing each other not in opposition to each other
0: right and there's something I think we're we're learning about genes which is that um, genes can be expressed or not expressed and that has to do with the environment that you're in
1: or the Experiences that you have can you say more about that? Yeah, so when you think about it we we have we humans have about 19,000 genes and in any given cell like say a neuron At any time, there's, oh, you know, for neurons, there's about 12,000 genes expressed at a time. And some of them you want turned off all the time. You don't want your neurons expressing the genes that are important for secreting stomach acid or, or growing hair out of a hair follicle for example, obviously. And so they're just shut off for good. But even more interestingly, are genes that are turned on and off as a result of our experiences in the world. And of course, again, this is experience broadly written. Everything from genes can be turned off from a stressful social situation to having a poor night's sleep to some are turned off during the night and turned on during the day or vice versa. All of our experiences turn a set of our genes, not just in our neurons, but throughout our body on and off. So so our genes are built to be modified by mm-hmm. experience.
0: Are there any diseases that can be turned on or off, depending on the, the circumstances that we're in?
1: There are diseases... That that interact with the environment. So, mm. for example, there's a metabolic disease called phenylketonuria or PKU. This is one of the things that babies are tested for right when they're born. And uh, so, in order to have PKU, two things have to happen. One of them is you got to have you have to inherit broken genes for the gene to metabolize the amino acid phenylalanine from both your mother and your father. But then on top of that, you got to eat foods that are rich in phenylalanine. Hmm. If you never eat any foods that have phenylalanine and it, it, doesn't matter that the gene is broken. You'll never get sick. So that's another example of inv- uh, heredity experience interaction that's not versus. It's It's complicated and interesting.
0: Right. Can you tell me a little bit more about what types of traits are inheritable and kind of which are not?
1: Well, so there are some traits that are not heritable at all, like your speech accent. And by that, I don't mean your voice quality, like whether your voice is high-pitched or low-pitched or resonant or greedy, but the accent that you have developed, uh, that you, you pick up from your peers uh, around you, that is is not something that is all her- heritable. At the other end of the scale, there are some traits that are entirely heritable. For example, we all have either wet or dry earwax, and that is entirely determined by a single gene called ABCC11. And it doesn't matter how your parents raised you, or what foods you eat, or where you grew up. If you've got the wet earwax variant of ABCC11, you'll be wet. And if you have the dry earwax variant, you'll be dry. Uh, But most of the traits that we care about, either very straightforward traits like height or more complicated behavioral traits like novelty-seeking or shyness, they're somewhere in the middle. They will have a heritable component. And we can estimate that heritable component by studying twins, both monozygotic or so-called identical twins and fraternal twins raised either to part uh, apart or together. And by looking at the incidence of traits and using a little mathematical formula, we can say, oh, all right, well, uh, novelty-seeking appears to be about Forty percent heritable, by which I mean that forty percent in the variability of the trait of novelty seeking can be accounted for by the genes you inherit from your parents. Hmm. And by novelty seeking, sorry, what what does that mean exactly? Well, so so this novelty seeking is a trait that that. Uh, Psychologists have come up with meaning, you know, the desire to have new experiences Mm. all the time. Uh, So if you're the sort of person who you know wants to do extreme sports and and try new foods and 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 take risks and you know maybe invest your money on something that may or may not work out, these are examples of novelty-seeking behavior.
0: That's so interesting. I mean, I think of I think of young kids, siblings, for example, grown up in the exact same environment, and oftentimes you hear of this that there is one child that wants to go out and explore, maybe get into trouble, experience new things. And then the other one um is is just a little more timid, shy, likes being at home, which I think kind of speaks to what you're saying.
1: Well, that's right. And and so when you look at that, you don't really know how that came about, right? right. So the trait of novelty seeking is say approximately 40% heritable, which leaves a whole lot for other things. Those other things include not just how your parents raised you and what happened in the community but this other stuff i mentioned like you know things that happened when when you were being carried in utero but also importantly a healthy dose of just pure randomness Hmm. so here's what i mean if you take newborn identical twins monozygotic twins they have the same dna they grew together lying right next to each other in the womb and they're born And you look at them, they're not really identical, either in their appearance or in their temperament. And if you go look inside with a medical scanning machine, you know, you might find, well, one has a liver that's 30% larger than the other. There are animals that are always born as uh, identical sibs. So, for example, the nine-banded armadillo is born as identical quadruplets. Hmm. And yet if you look at if you compare the nine-banded armadillo siblings they're already at birth showing lots of different things and and the reason is because the dna isn't a blueprint it's not it's not a precise map that instructs exactly where your cells go and what they do and what they connect with down to the finest, finest detail. Rather, it's a set of general instructions. It might say to a group of neurons in your brain, hey, hey, you guys, about half of you cross the midline and grow this other way. But, you know, in one twin, that might be 40% and another 60%. And so there's a big dose of randomness. That's that's the third factor beyond heritability and experience that... uh, makes us individuals
0: gosh i mean that that seems to present a whole new level of complexity to this and and i wonder how close we are to understanding i guess this notion of randomness
1: well yeah i mean it just goes to show you that you know you can read the whole genome and you don't know the whole story right 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 you know that doesn't mean two people with the identical genome don't have the same body uh at the finest levels Right. If we were to look at the connections of the brain, they wouldn't be the same, even at birth. And then, of course, through the experiences that they acquire during their lives, they become more and more divergent.
0: Right. What about this notion of PTSD? I feel like this is something that's coming up a lot more now, is this notion that trauma, something, say, I mean, in the most horrific senses, things like a Holocaust, that that can then actually be passed on genetically. What do you know about that?
1: Well, so there have been a lot of claims. People uh, call it transgenerational epigenetics, meaning that you can inherit the trauma of, say, your grandmother or your grandfather. I'm sad to say that while this phenomenon occurs in plants and it occurs in worms, that the evidence for it in humans is really not there Hmm. at present. I've read pretty much every paper on this topic, and I don't believe a single one of them. Uh, So this doesn't mean that it's very easy to go across one generation. Like if your mother was stressed out while she's carrying you in utero, those stress hormones can pass through the placenta and affect the development of your brain. But that doesn't mean that your kids will then receive any of that stress effect, right? So going one generation is... Pretty well established, particularly maternally, particularly during gestation. But this transgenerational trauma, uh, I'm not buying it yet.
0: Hmm, interesting. Well, what about mental illness, though? I mean, you hear, for example, that things like bipolar disorder can run in a family, um, anxiety, uh, depression disorders. What does what is, what, what is your reading of the research tell you about those?
1: Well, that's absolutely true, but that's not because of epigenetics. In other words, that's not not because somebody got stressed and then it got passed on, not in the DNA, but in the marks that sit on top of the DNA. So you're absolutely right. So, I mean, if you look at uh, uh, major depression, uh, I think it's something in the ballpark of 60% of the variability Is heritable schizophrenia it's even higher about 80 percent autism similarly Mm -hmm. 80 85 percent of the variability is heritable so there are an awful lot of neuropsychiatric diseases that have uh, a very large heritable component but I think one of the things that that I'd like people to understand is just because something is very heritable doesn't mean that there is one or a small number of genes responsible for it so for example let's take a real straightforward trait like height that people don't argue about very much height is about 85 percent heritable if you you know live in a wealthy country and have good public health and plenty of food Uh, but it's controlled by the interactions between over a thousand different genes there's no single height gene there's not even a handful of height genes it's produced by the very tiny addition of many much of lots and lots of of variants and so far the same thing is true for for most uh behavioral traits there are some neuropsychiatric diseases that we can actually trace to uh Uh, to single genes, most of them are highly what we say is polygenic. Hmm. That is that they, something like autism, so far it seems like it represents the shared contribution of tiny variations in a large number of genes. I
0: I want to circle back to something you said earlier because it really caught my attention, um, which is that there is so much that happens um, while a child is in utero, or you mentioned things even quickly that I, I want to go back to. For example, the, the temperature uh, uh, in which you experience your first year of life, there's these small little things, whether or not your mother was sick or not. Um, can you kind of go back to that and shed a little bit more light on these things? Because I don't know
1: how, how well that's known. Right. Well, so uh, something that's relevant to our present COVID situation is that uh, during massive influenza outbreaks like the 1918 uh, pandemic flu. Hmm. We know that women who were carrying babies in the winter of 1918, 1919, when their children were born and grew up, those kids had a fourfold higher incidence of schizophrenia and roughly a fourfold higher incidence of autism in the general population, meaning that it went up from roughly 1% to roughly 4%. And that's an enormous effect. And uh, we now have some evidence from studies done in mice suggesting how that might happen, which is as uh, the mother is fighting off the infection, uh, her body secretes uh, a chemical called interleukin-17, and it's an immune system signaling molecule, and that passes through the placenta and affects the uh, developing brain of the fetus, particularly if the fetus is at just exactly the right stage to be susceptible to that and so you know one good question is is this going to be the case with covid we don't know Mm. you know what's going to happen with the, the the babies uh whose moms were fighting off covid when they were in utero it's going to be really interesting uh, uh, to find out
0: do you think all of this sheds more light on the importance of of the period in which the mother is pregnant i mean we know that that's a delicate time but perhaps this this says even more so you know
1: oh it's a crazy time i mean it is so crazy that for example we're taught that our cells in our body all come as combinations from our mother and father but that's not true if you're a woman who's ever been pregnant your body is colonized by the, by the fetal cells of the fetuses you carried. Hmm. And they can take up residence in your body and, and in your brain and last your entire life. Likewise, if you have a twin, there's a good chance that your twin cells transfused via your mother into you and have been retained through your life. You can even, if you are a younger sibling have cells from an older sibling that passed into your mother, stayed there for a while, and then get passed to you during the pregnancy that, that, in which you developed. So, so, yeah, I mean, the time in utero is really rife with all kinds of excitement and ways to impact and, and create human individuality.
0: You know, David, one thing I was thinking about as I was reading your book is this question of whether or not this information that you're talking about can make us a more empathic culture. I mean, can we, can we understand that certain things are inherited and therefore a little bit harder to change in us?
1: I think a place where we can all be more compassionate is in realizing that body mass index is a highly heritable trait. Mm. There's a massive industry and, and a lot of television uh, uh, designed to promote the idea that if you just have enough willpower, you can lose as much weight as you want and keep it off. And, and in, in practice, that's you know, an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. It's not impossible, but it's, it's limited, and it's really, really hard. And so when you accept that body mass index is a 70% heritable trait, maybe that can make us more compassionate uh, uh, for folks who are carrying more weight, that
0: is really interesting because I think you're exactly right. This is a culture that shows very little empathy in in that regard. It's more of up to you. you you can change yourself, but I, I take your point that, that that we don't think about. Are there any other examples of things like that 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 come to mind?
1: Well, I would say uh, drug addiction mm. is one of them, right? So you know, about forty percent of the uh, of the variability and the propensity to be an addict uh, appears to be, Heritable. In truth, these days, I would say there are more people who are willing to really take it into our heart, their heart, the idea that addiction is a disease, than there are people uh, willing to take it into their heart that obesity uh, is a disease. Huh. Somehow, we culturally, at least in the United States, have a have a harder time with that. There, there is something about us that wants to think that that is an arena into which we have more personal control than we really do.
0: What about human sexuality, which is something that comes up in your book? Um, what, what does the research tell us about that?
1: Yeah, human sexuality is is really uh, an interesting topic uh, in that sense. If you just kind of look at twin studies, in cis men, about 40% of the variability in sexual orientation is heritable. And in cis women, it is about, only about 20%. Mm and in trans folks we don't know enough because just the, the 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 numbers aren't big enough to say anything yet but i think what's even more interesting is that the truth is that on average men's and women's sexuality is different in the sense that most men gay straight bi or or you know whatever modern term you want to use will say you know when I first began to have sexual feelings, they were this way, and that's the way it was for the rest of my life. They were immutable. Mm. And actually, immutable is the word that is the pillar of the Obergefell versus Hodges uh, same-sex marriage decision. But if you ask women, it's a different story. Yeah, some women will say, oh, yeah, so, you know, I knew I was a lesbian from the early days, and I've always been a lesbian. I, you know, I, was, I knew I was straight, or I knew... I was... But there is a very significant fraction of of women who are much more fluid. Uh, and a researcher named Lisa Diamond has done a beautiful job, written a great book on this. And what's interesting is it's not just like it's easily captured by terms like straight and gay and bi. So, Uh, You all probably know people in your life, some woman who has uh, always been straight, but then falls in love with a particular woman. She Mm. may not say, oh, I'm attracted now to women generally, but I'm attracted to this particular woman. Or occasionally the other way around. A, A woman has always been with women who says, well, I'm not interested in guys generally, but this one particular guy, yeah, I love him. And in this way, there's something fundamentally and fascinatingly different about the sexual orientation of men and women. Mm.
0: And I wonder if some of that can help just keep us open-minded or more informed about about these conversations, which I know are just so sensitive culturally.
1: Well, they are so sensitive culturally, and they are so culturally constructed, hmm. right? I mean, so there's, there's a famous anthropological case uh, of a group that lived in the in the lowlands of Papua New Guinea, uh, where young boys the belief there is that they have to receive semen uh, in order to grow into men, and so the idea is that you have sex with 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 men uh, when you are young and ev- and all the young boys do it and then there 's a period of time where that ends, and you have sex with other women and men, and then most but not all men move on to to having a, a traditional marriage like relationship. Uh, With one woman and you know, we look from outside this culture and we can try to put these labels on like Oh, well first you're gay and then you're bi and then you're straight, but it's kind of useless It's kind of silly Because within that culture those kind those constructions and those ideas don't make any sense at all So I think we have to realize that our our categories of sexual orientation are malleable and they're culturally constructed
0: right well, I mean, when we add a lot of this up, I, I wonder what the message is you would want to leave some of our listeners, maybe those that are bringing up kids or or just in general. I mean, what is this kind of, where does this take us in terms of telling us or giving us more information as to understanding who we are?
1: Well, you know, to me, the one of the most interesting things about it is that it's not, you, you You can hear, oh my gosh, there's a, there's a genetic influence on this and that and the other thing that's really depressing. We're all automatons. We're all slaves to our genes. Well, no, we're not. And then you have other people say, oh, well, we are pure creatures of free will. We can We can take in information. That information is pure and unaltered. We can make unemotional, rational decisions uh, uh, about it every time, and that's also not true. Everything we know about the brain, and actually, my day job is that I'm a brain researcher, tells us that that is is not true. By the time we're aware of sensations, they're blended with expectations uh, and emotions, and that's what makes sense for the brain to do. So, neither we're we're not we're not genetically determined robots, nor are we these pure ethereal creatures of of rational free will we are we are subject to uh all kinds of of biases and spin that our brains and bodies put on the information and and I think knowing that can can help us find our way in the world yeah we're kind of driving the bus half the
0: time well david linden of johns hopkins university this has been a, a really interesting conversation thank you thank you for the
1: time thank you so much for having me on it was fun
0: Once again, that was David Linden, professor of neuroscience at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And he's also the author of the new book called Unique, The New Science of Human Individuality. Still to come, what's the fascination with identical twins? And why do they display so many similarities, even when raised apart? That's ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian back with Life Examined on KCRW. While we just heard Professor David Linden say nature versus nurture, though fun to say, actually paints a false impression of how we develop as individuals. And some of the most interesting research that speaks to this complexity has been by studying twins. In particular, identical twins separated at birth and brought back together later in life. It's a perfect test case to study what identical genes dropped into two different environments tell us about human individuality. Professor of psychology and director of the Twin Studies Center at California State University, Fullerton, Nancy Siegel has made her career studying twins. And as we'll learn in just a second, she has a very personal connection to the subject. Well, Professor Nancy Siegel, welcome to Life Examined. We appreciate the time. Good morning. Well, tell us about your journey into twin research. Where did this start for you?
2: Well, it actually started in the womb for me because I'm a fraternal twin. Ah, okay. I have a sister who looks and acts very differently than me. And as a child, I was so fascinated by that because here we were, two kids, exactly the same age, raised by parents in the same home with so many experiences. And yet we went in very, very different directions. So... I began to get very interested in psychology. And when I got to high school, undergraduate, graduate school, and I began to discover twin research, I knew I'd found my niche. And I have just been so amazed at the wonderful work that twin studies can accomplish, from twins raised apart to virtual twins, to twins raised together, male, female. I mean, so many, many different topics that inform us about who we are and how we got that way.
0: Yeah, I take it that the the research on this has come quite quite a far way. I mean, what what were you what do you remember kind of reading about this early on that that got you extra interested in the subject?
2: Well, I was always very interested in twin relationships, the differences between identical and fraternal twins in terms of their closeness and their intimacy and their social connection. Because I remember in school, I would see identical twins and they seemed so close. And yet my sister and I, while we had a lot of family loyalty and we were basically friends, we didn't have that sort of twin mystique that many people think about. You know, we just didn't have that. And I was fascinated by that. And so that has informed most of the research I've done in subsequent years. So my doctoral dissertation was called Cooperation, Competition, and Altruism Within Twin Sets, a reappraisal. And what I did there was I gave puzzles to young identical fraternal twins and watch them solve it. And it was just wonderful because just by acting naturally, identical twins told us so much about how they interact. They were happy. They were sitting close to one another. They were successful. This was a joyful experience. But for fraternal twins, they were uninvolved. They were working individually. It just didn't have the same feeling to it. And so that has informed my research in many, many different ways, When I got to the University of Minnesota, and of course I worked on the study of twins raised apart with Dr. Bouchard, I was wondering if you would see that same thing mirrored in twins raised apart who were newly reunited. That is, would identical twins meeting for the first time show a closer social connection than fraternal twins? And that's exactly what I found. So, So how do we explain all this? I think it's that their common genes underlie their similar traits in intelligence, interest, personality, temperament. But it's not so much the similar traits, it's the perception of those traits, that if I see bits of myself mirrored in you, I'm going to feel a social attraction towards you.
0: That's so interesting. And, And I want to make sure that our listeners are just clear on one very early thing you said, which was the differences between identical and fraternal twins.
2: Right. Let's define that. Identical twins share all their genes in common, having split from a single fertilized egg between the first and 14th day after conception. They're always of the same sex, whereas fraternal twins result when the mother releases two eggs at the same time, and they're fertilized by two separate sperm. So these twins share the same genetic relationship as ordinary brothers and sisters, which is 50% of their genes on average by descent. Now, this gives scientists the most beautiful, simple, yet elegant model for looking at the genetic and environmental influences on behavior, because we assemble large numbers of identical twins, compare their similarities to large numbers of fraternal twins. And if the identical twins are more alike, this tells us that the genes influence that trait to some degree. And invariably, across the board, when it comes to physical, behavioral traits, doesn't matter, we find identical twins do tend to be more alike than fraternals. And the surprising thing to many of us was that genetic influence is so pervasive. It affects so many of our traits. One of the major findings in the last, oh, maybe 30 years or so, has been that something like religiosity, our tendency to become invested in religious rituals and, and traditions and habits, seems to have a genetic influence to it. I mean, not that there's a gene for religiosity, but it seems to reflect many, many things about us that do have genetic components.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit more about this famous Minnesota study you were part of? Because I know this was kind of a a landmark um, piece of research when we begin to talk about understanding twins.
2: Yes, that study began in 1979 when two twins in the state of Ohio, Jim Lewis and Jim Springer, met one another at the age of 39. And they had a very long list of similarities. For example, Both twins had married women named Linda and Betty, and then one of the twins divorced and married Sandy. So the other one was a little nervous about whether or not he would divorce as well. But they both bit their fingernails. They both had um, part-time jobs as sheriffs. They both drove the same cars. They vacationed in the same area in Florida. They um, worked at McDonald's part-time. They had severe headaches at the same time in adolescence. So they had a long list of similarities, which really captured the public and scientific imagination. And Professor Bouchard, a professor at the University of Minnesota, decided to bring the Jim twins into the laboratory and put them through a very extensive assessment, and perhaps they might find other twins through that. Now, I did not arrive at Minnesota until 1982, but of course, I followed the work very closely, And the gym twins then led to about 15 other pairs of twins. Hmm. And by that time, the study was ongoing. I arrived as a postdoctoral fellow and stayed there for nine years. And it was just amazing to see these twins up close and to see their similarities. For example, we had a pair of twins that we called the Giggle Twins. Uh, These Giggle Twins are raised in England, didn't meet until they were in their 30s. And they both would laugh. I mean, they didn't laugh with other people, but with each other incessantly i don't know what what set them off <laughs> and they both had the same crooked picky fingers they both were very uninterested in politics and in reading they both had the same number of children so it goes the list goes on and on there was another pair that came to us from england who came to the airport independently wearing seven rings three bracelets and a watch and so you can say how do you explain this well the women liked glitter. They liked jewelry. They had long, slender hands and fingers that showed jewelry off just beautifully. They could afford to buy these things. So you can see that when you start to decompose a trait into its components, you can start to understand where these genetic influences might come from. Now, on the fraternal twins that we saw, we saw these kinds of unusual similarities to a much lower degree. I recall one pair where they each had 18 tattoos. Mm. Now, that was sort of interesting, but that's the only example I recall from a set of fraternal twins.
0: This is so, yeah, so interesting. I mean, specifically this thing about these identical twins, separated, reunited. Um, I, and I think it kind of gets to the heart of, of this nature-nurture conversation. I mean, we heard David Linden talk a little bit about this, and he says maybe that's a simplistic way of thinking about it. But, I mean, you're really hitting on this notion that our genetics drive uh, a lot of who we are. So can you say more about kind of what we began to d- take away from these studies?
2: Yes, well, genetics does drive more of who we are than we would have thought, but we have to consider how. And we talk about um, nature via nurture, which means that genes act through the environment in many ways. Now, for example, all of us come into the world with genetic potentials, and we may be inclined towards an academic life so we'll seek out those opportunities. Or we may be inclined toward an athletic life, so we seek out those opportunities. Or we like our house decorated in a certain way, and that reflects who we are. It's not just that the household decorations are there. We put them there, we made the decision to put them there, and they reflect something about us. So we just can't think of environment as sort of these random things that surround us. We create those environments in many ways. And we think that that is why identical twins raised apart are so similar, because they choose from among the opportunities available to them in their respective environments.
0: Are there, though, examples where things turned out extremely different, where uh, identical twins, I mean, because of the situations they were put in, um, went in very different directions?
2: Yes, of course there are. And those are enormously informative. About two years ago, I published a book called Accidental Brothers, which was about an incredible situation of two identical male pairs born in Colombia, South America, a day apart, and they were born 150 miles apart. One in the lively capital city of Bogota, and the other in a very rural farming area, very remote, where there wasn't even running water, no electricity. Children didn't go past the age of uh, didn't go to school past uh, fifth grade at the age of eleven. But one of those little babies up there in the rural area needed better medical care immediately. So he was brought down to Bogota. And when they brought him back a week later, they accidentally brought back the twin from another pair. Wow. So you had two sets of non-related individuals thinking they were fraternal twins until various things happened. And they all reunited at the age of 25. But the point I want to make in reference to your question is the. The twins who were raised in the rural area did not have an education or the opportunities, as did the, the two twins living in Bogota. So we found that their their educational levels, their educational attainment, their knowledge of certain things was very, very different. You know, in, in, in general IQ scores, you could see the differences there. Uh, you can certainly see it in the accents. You could see it in some of the values. So these things can make a difference. But keep in mind that these are extreme environments, which can overwhelm genetic different uh, genetic commonalities. Because in the Reared Apart twins in Minnesota, we we did not have twins raised in such extremely different environments yeah. as as we had for the Bogota twins or the Colombian twins.
0: Right. You know, one thing I should note, too, uh, from your research is that, um, and I've read this elsewhere, too, is that um, when we think about these cases, oftentimes um, there's a major benefit to keeping twins actually together and not separating them for their general health. Isn't that true?
2: Oh, I am a great advocate for keeping twins together. Uh, The twins who are reunited as adults are really angry, upset, frustrated, sad that an adoption agency somehow... You know, separated them. Maybe families wanted only one twin or whatever, but for whatever reason they were separated. Sometimes parents decide to keep one and give one away. Uh, sometimes mothers die in childbirth, so twins are given to different families. But whatever the reason, these twins are so happy to have met and so regretful of the years they lost together. Um, you know, there's a big controversy in the twin world about whether you separate twins in school. And My opinion is that you should not have any kind of policy, that you simply do it on a case-by-case basis, that if the twins do better together, keep them together. There's this sudden fear that they will never develop a separate identity, which is completely unfounded. And research shows that these twins do better when they're together. I tell teachers, put them at different tables. They can mix and mingle that way. And then they have each other as security. Uh, so I really believe that schools have to rethink those policies very seriously.
0: Yeah. And and to kind of return, I think, to one of our central questions here, which is the extent to which genetics impact who we are, um, just listening to your stories and reflecting on them, I, I wonder how this has maybe impacted your, your thoughts on how we raise kids or the empathy we show towards kids and, and, and the environments they grow up. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I think parenting is one of the most important responsibilities that mothers and fathers have. And I think that parents should worry less and pay more attention to the children. I tell parents that you don't bring your children up, they bring you up. And the reason I say that is because parents respond in certain ways to certain children. And I think it's the parent's responsibility to identify and then nurture whatever interests, talents, and abilities that child shows. I also believe that Parents who have two children um, should do the same thing with both kids and to treat them equally, meaning the the exact same opportunities or after school lessons is probably not fair. And that's not fair treatment because you're not responding to each child's individual uh, inclinations.
0: So, I mean, the kid doesn't want to be a baseball player because that's not where their genetics are taking them. Do not force it, I, I guess, is one of the lessons here.
2: Yes. I think that's a very important lesson because the child will not be happy and you will not be happy. The thing is that maybe the child wants basketball or maybe the child wants to play chess. But whatever it is, I think that parents should allow children to be the best they can be. I think the genetics really um, brings us into who we are. Now, I'm not saying the environment doesn't matter. You need to have kids uh, exposed to opportunities. And you know, most of us don't even capitalize on the range of opportunities available to us. I mean, people who are professors might have been doctors, might have been lawyers. I mean, you don't know. Chance plays a role as well. But the point is that in the environment you're in, you're probably not there totally by chance because it's an environment that you sought.
0: Mm. You know, um Professor Linden, who we heard from earlier, also talked about another big another big component of this which um which is randomness. He talks about genes, environment, and randomness. Is this something you've looked at too that as much as we try and explain things, there is just going to be this this sense of you know the genetic code or or aspects of it that that are kind of um hard to explain
2: Well, I think that is true to a large to some degree. Uh, There are events out there in the environment, what we call the non-shared environment. effects that parents and children or family members do not share in common. We don't know exactly how they work. They may work differently to different families, different children. There is some luck involved sometimes. You know, there is a randomness to this. There's no question about it. But in individual cases, I think perhaps we can see that more clearly than we can when we study large groups because it's the... It's the group effect, I think, that gives us the message. I mean, certainly, um, you know, you asked me before, are there individual cases where you see extreme differences between twins? And of course there are, yes. But most identical twins show very similar and synchronized patterns of development.
0: I'm curious, because I think we're hearing more about this now, which is questions of mental illness that can be passed on as well. And, and I wonder if this comes up in twins. We hear sometimes how it can be depression, or anxiety. Um, it, it, there can be epigenetic factors here. They can be expressed by certain environments. Have you looked into this all? Or is there any research about this?
2: Uh, there's, there's a lot of research on that. So first of all, I can say that for psychopathology, the major disorders like schizophrenia, Uh, bipolar illness, these do have genetic components, but they are less than you think. For schizophrenia, if you're an identical twin who's affected, the chance your brother or sister would be affected is only about 40%. So it's not as high as we might think, which means that events perhaps prenatally, epigenetic events, turning on or turning off of certain genes or something in the postnatal environment might trigger the condition in one and not in the other. Uh, But certainly when we know we do know that mental illness is transmitted in families. We find higher similarity rates in identicals than we do in fraternal twins. Mm. Absolutely. And and in fact, when you find identical twins who differ, uh, this is a form of what we call natural co-twin control. And it's very fascinating because you can start to look at one twin and decide, or at least try to determine, what what activated the effect in one and kept it quiet in the other. And that's information that you could potentially use in the general population to prevent and manage disease.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, is there anything else to add to that? I mean, are we getting a better sense of, of how these things are expressed depending on the environment?
2: Well, you know, this is not my area, so I'm not going to really speak to that. But I do know that they're making a lot of progress in the area of identifying certain genes linked to certain mental disorders, as well as some of the epigenetic effects.
0: To kind of go back to something you said a little bit earlier, which is this, this, this need for twins to be close, especially as they grow older. Is this something that, I don't know, that you can talk about more? Is there something that's, that is especially important to them about the closeness of that relationship?
2: Well, it's a relationship that I believe is the closest of all human social ties. The identical twin relationship is the fraternal one is a little bit more variable. And there was a very interesting study done on older twins. And they found that with identical twins, even if they lived apart, their closeness was still very, very strong. But for fraternal twins, closeness was linked to physical proximity, which suggests that those twins who were closer chose to live closer, um, But with identicals, they can maintain their closeness regardless. You know, I recently studied and wrote about a pair of twins originally from South Africa. One still lives there, and one has now moved to Portugal. So they see each other only once a year, but they are on email and telephone constantly. I mean, they said it's as if they live next door. So identical twins maintain that contact regardless. Um, It's not... Ideal, of course, you, you want to be in close proximity, but they manage. And you know, the flip side of all that is when I've done studies on the loss of a twin, I find that identical twins do mourn the loss of their co-twin to a somewhat larger degree than fraternal twins. But another interesting finding is I have identical and fraternal twins both rate the degree of loss, or degree of severity devastation they feel in the response to other relatives who died in their lifetime. And the twin comes out the highest, higher than than ordinary siblings, higher than parents, higher than um, you know, cousins. But the only comparison I've not been able to make is children. And I mm. hope I never have to do that. I don't want any twins to lose any children. Yeah. But that would be a very fascinating one, genetically speaking, because identical twins are more related to each other than they are to their children. See, so they share half their gen- they share all their genes with their twin have for their children. So that would be interesting and to see how that might vary as a function of age as well.
0: There's something so, I, I find that's so kind of provocative and interesting in, in this notion that you defined the relationship between identical twins as perhaps the closest relationship we know among humans. I don't know what it is in that. I mean, this notion of, of loving something that is so similar to us or that is part of us or that shares the same DNA. I mean, what else can you add to that?
2: You know, twins don't, think themselves, I share DNA with this person. But what they do share is they have similar behaviors, similar attitudes. And what twins tell me, identical twins do, is that it's an acceptance, unconditional love, acceptance, understanding, intimacy, understanding without having to explain. And that is such a luxury. I mean, I think that's something that we all crave. And identical twins sometimes, I think their closeness may put off some people who need a little more independence, and, and that's fine. You know, not everybody craves that kind of closeness, but I think most people do. And the fact that identical twins tell me that they, they share things that their spouses never know about, uh, that can create a little tension sometimes, as you can understand. There are twins who marry twins. I We don't know the frequency of that, identical twins who marry identical twins. We don't know the frequency of that, but I've seen more and more cases of it. And what I understand from them is that if they were to marry non-twins, the non-twin would not understand the relationship that they share with their twin. But this way, everybody understands all the dynamics among all the players, and it works for them. Now, I know that some people might say that's too much closeness, that's crazy, it's weird. It's not. As long as they're happy, they're not hurting anybody, they're getting along, I don't see why anybody should care or have any judgments.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. Now, you know, it just reminds me of this story, which is that I... um. I found out about 10 years ago that I had a half brother and and then and then we met and of course we're not twins but anyone and he's 20 years older than me but it's so interesting that anybody who would meet us would always talk about this very similarity in body movement and expression and in little things that just seemed kind of, you know, are you just projecting this upon us or is this real? And what I'm taking away partially from this conversation is that actually maybe there are some kind of uh, very unusual and strange similarities between us that might actually be true.
2: Well, I think that what you're explaining and describing is is. Perfectly natural, and in fact, we see that among twins all the time, whether they're raised together or raised apart, the way they move, the way they stand, the way they gesture, things that we used to think were probably picked up through the environment, but that's the beauty of twins raised apart and half-siblings raised apart as well. They can give us clues to these kinds of things. Now, I'm just completing a book um, about the controversial study done in New York City about twins and triplets adopted apart. And um, along those lines, many of those twins who reunited uh, also showed very similar tastes and preferences or medical life histories. So, twins raised apart, I think, are a stronger case because you could always say that with twins raised together, there's some contagion going on. But with twins raised apart, you cannot say that. It's a very, very powerful case.
0: Professor Nancy Siegel is a professor of psychology and director of the Twin Studies Center at California State University, Fullerton. Um, We appreciate the time. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. You can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastian at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.